I'd say that. I think a lot of Saudis now look at themselves as um, international citizens in a way. As Saudis opening up more and more to the world, um, I definitely feel that especially young people, with the help of technology, obviously, um, are, are more connected um, with um, what's happening in Saudi, but also abroad. And um, I would also say, and, and that goes back to uh, a point that, Lucien, you've mentioned, um, a lot of Saudis, young Saudis, are starting to travel um, around the country on weekends to explore the country. Um, and it's actually something that's been um, happening more and more because of the pandemic. This is the 966. This is the 966, episode 25. Richard Mabruk. Thank you. Joining us this week, a special guest from London, Dr. Rada Alharthi. Uh, Rada is a senior consultant at Barker Langham, associate director, MA Innovation Management, Central St. Martins, and a young advisor at Chatham House. Rada, thank you so much for joining the 966 Virtual Magilis this week. Of course. It's a pleasure to be here, Mr. Thank you. Very exciting. Will, very exciting. Today we'll be talking about the start of the Saudi International Golf Tournament, the announcement of a new holiday in Saudi Arabia, social entrepreneurship, and much more. Before we begin, of course, it's really cool to see Richard, our listener and viewership, climb. Unlike the latest IPOs on the Saudi stock market this week, it is impossible to be oversubscribed to the 966. <laughs> so wherever you're getting the 966, you can also get it on YouTube or Spotify, Apple Podcasts, whatever works for you works for us. So... Let's jump right into it. Richard, what's your one big thing this week? Well, we can't not miss the fact that Lucian is, I think, incapable of starting any segment of the 966 without a golf reference. <laughs> ah, so you're paying attention to that. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a good true. thing. Some, someday we're going to go play Royal Greens. Wouldn't that be cool? That would be awesome. Yes. That's what we're doing all this for is to just angle for that one invite to go play there. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, that and Elucid. So, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, my one big thing. Last week, King Salman issued a royal order announcing that February 22nd will be known as Founding Day. The new annual national holiday, which will be celebrated for the first time next month, has been created to recognize the foundation of the first Saudi state in 1727 by Muhammad ibn Saud. Ancestors of the Saudi royal family first founded the city of Daria in 1446, but it was Imam Muhammad who first attempted to transform the city-state into a nation-state. According to Dr. Badran al-Hunayan, Associate Director of Historical Research and Studies at Daria Gate, Development Authority, which is a huge giga project and it's amazing. Uh, quote, many historians have neglected the initial period of Muhammad ibn Saud's rule and the preceding era, even though this was the foundational period of the state. Dr. Badran adds, quote, founding day is not intended to replace Saudi National Day, which celebrates the unification of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia in 1932, but rather to recognize the beginning of the Saudi state's history with a new event that celebrates the deep historical roots of the kingdom. You know, I find this, I'll jump right in, I find this constantly fascinating, the, the Saudi experiment. We, it's always worthwhile to remember how young Saudi Arabia is. Um, the founder of the state, uh, Ibn Saud, uh, Abdulaziz bin Abdulrahman, who, who unified the country in 1932. So unified the country in 1932, died in 1953. So when, the year he died, Eisenhower was president. That's how recent this country is. It's a young country. And I think it's fascinating what they're, what they're doing here. The, 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 the National Day was just institutionalized in 2005. So now we have the Founding Day, um, which, so if you look at it, National Day sort of takes you back to the founding in 1932. So Ibn Saud and, and his his sort of fascinating story of coming over, you know, with 40 of his best friends on camels in January 1902 and, and taking the, the, the fort at Riyadh, you know, to start that unification process. So that takes you back to 32, so maybe 90 plus years. This founding day takes you back another 150 years in terms of the Saudi, you know, Al Saud lineage and, 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 and the origins of the country. And I just, I don't want to get too wonky here, but um, I sort of went and looked at the difference between country and nation. And, you know, let, let's give you a quick definition of country. So um, a country is an area, uh, internationally recognized boundaries and, and with its own government. 
some requirements for sovereignty include permanent residence, a transportation system, an education system, organized economic system. So it's sort of a legalistic definition, right? Now, a nation is a cultural political community that has become conscious of its coherence, unity, and particular interests. Here's the money quote. It shares a common myth of origins and descent. A common history, elements of a distinctive culture, a common territorial association, a sense of group solidarity. So, so the United States has a common myth of origins and descent. Mm -hmm. And and you see with this, you see with this founding day, the very conscious and directed effort to solidify and organize a common myth of origins and descent. And myth is not derogative here. Myth is the narrative that a country tells about itself. And uh, you know when you think about Ibn Saud organizing the country and, and, and bringing in, you know, the Hejaz and Al-Assa and the Asir and, and, you know, expanding out from the Nejd and the central province and, and all these tribes and all these different families. And now we see them very consciously moving. Let's, let's move beyond this aggregation and be a Saudi nation. And I just think it's fascinating. I, I just think, you know, constantly what Saudi Arabia and where they are in the process of this, I just find endlessly interesting. Rada, feel, feel free to jump in here. Yeah, sure. I was going to say that was a very exciting announcement, Richard. Not so many people are aware that Saudi as a country uh, has existed for almost 300 years. Um, it's, a, it's a country with a rich, long history, and that announcement says it clearly. There is so much to explore uh, and heritage to see and learn about. Um, it started in Al-Turayf, uh, a UNESCO World Heritage Site, um, with right. beautiful architecture. Then Diriyah, then uh, Riyadh, eventually. Yeah, uh, that Diriyah uh, development is really amazing, and, and it, it historically is fascinating. And this sort of is going, going in line with um, a lot of the the investment and the bringing of attention to Saudi Arabia's history before they were a nation and all of the different peoples and tribes and um, traders that used the Arabian Peninsula or, or lived in the Arabian Peninsula, obviously going back to Al-Allah and some of those places. So it's cool. Like there's there's more like there's more awareness now of, you know, Saudi Arabia as being more of a, an established country and and. And, you know, America is a very young country if you look at, you know, comparatively around the world. Um, but Saudi Arabia is even younger. And so it's all it's just it's it, this is a very interesting story. And so I apologize, Richard. So the, the flag changing that is not associated with this holiday announcement. Is that correct? Correct. OK. Uh, OK. But I think it's I think consistent with trying to sort of codify your story to formalize and and and. and you know, get everybody on the same page and, and uh, people invested in the narrative, which I think is important. I'd say that. I think a lot of Saudis now look at themselves as um, international citizens in a way. As Saudi is opening up more and more to the world, um, I definitely feel that especially young people, with the help of technology, obviously, um, are, are more connected um, with uh, what's happening in Saudi, but also abroad. And um, I would also say, and, and that goes back to uh, a point that, Lucien, you've mentioned, um, a lot of Saudis, young Saudis, are starting to travel um, around the country on weekends to explore the country. Um, and it's actually something that's been um, happening more and more because of the pandemic um, and because of the travel ban. Um, so uh, they decided it's a good time now to go travel to Abha in the south or go to Hayil or Hassa or um, so... I don't know. I think it's it's a it's a bit of both, Richard. You know, there's a strong sense of oh, I am Saudi. This is my country. We have all these amazing places. And then there's a feeling of Saudi opening up with big events, um, international events like the Diriyah Biennale recently. You know, a lot of international people are coming in, and then the Saudis meeting them, connecting with them. So it's it's a bit of both, I'd say. You know, if you if you look at why they're doing this right now, and and um, sort of the the background context to all of this. I'm wondering if it's because 70% of Saudi Arabia is under 30 or, you know, right, roughly around there. And because they have all of these international events going on and Saudis are, like you mentioned, Krata, interest, uh, increasingly connected online. And so I wonder if there's an effort from the government here to say, look, we, this is all great. This is what we're doing. It's all going pretty much according to plan, but we sort of need to connect these young Saudis who are, you know, 18, and you know, using social media all the time, 
connect them to who they are and their place in the world and sort of give them an identity and remind them of who they really are. In America, our identity is just, you know, we, we're a new nation, you know, relatively, and we don't really have the same type of national identity in the same way, I would say, um, you know, the big melting pot. But in Saudi Arabia, it's like, well, what does it mean to be Saudi? What does it mean to be a young Saudi? And how can we remind our youth that this is who they are, this is where they've come from, and you know, just with all these international events coming in. So I'm wondering if that's part of the impetus here. I don't know if you I guys have any thoughts on that. Yeah, um, there's there's an enthusiasm in Saudi uh, for progressive thinking and for meeting the challenges and opportunities that come with the, with the small and large scale projects um, that are going on. But also, and, and of globalization as well, but uh, with a modern and more authentic self. Um, so they definitely want to maintain that feeling of, of, you know, it's Saudi first. And then um, after that, we're connected to the world more. I like that word. Uh, you know, there's always a, a tension between tradition and progress. Uh, but the key word in there was authentic, which I think Saudi Arabia is, is has becoming, you know, I, I'm much more confident in, in, in determining what is authentic, which you see in their, they're very proud putting forth of their cultural and their heritage and all these sites that you're seeing. And and why you have, you know, why you have, you know, date festivals, camel festivals. It's the year of Saudi coffee. All these things that are authentic and 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 you know have value in terms of heritage are very proudly being put forth as place, things you should come and see, and not only you know domestically in terms of Saudis, but also international tourists. Okay, uh, I will I will jump into my one big thing this week. Um, shocker! It is the. <laughs> <laughs> One big golf tournament that happens in Saudi Arabia every year begins today, February 3rd. The Saudi International at the Royal Greens Golf Club at King Abdullah Economic City is where some of the biggest stars in the sport, like Dustin Johnson, Bryson DeChambeau, are playing for a lion's share of the whopping $5 million purse for the event. 20 of the top 50 players in the world are there right now, and pretty much all had to get an exemption from the PGA Tour to play in Saudi Arabia this week. The or the European Tour. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Um, at the Asian tour, is it now? It's now the yeah, Asian tour. Yeah, it is yeah. now. Yeah. The tournament itself has the golf world's attention, but it is Saudi Arabia's wider golf ambitions that have more than just the sports diehard fans tuning in. Greg Norman, the shark, who is almost in a sort of man of the hour role right now, um, is again at the Saudi International pushing his and the PIF's vision to grow the game of golf internationally. And at a press conference this week, Norman said the PIF and Live Golf is increasing its annual investment in a series of 10 Asian tour events from $200 million to $300 million. What's $100 million? Um, <laughs> those events uh, called the International Series will be played in Thailand, England, Korea, Vietnam, the Middle East, China, Singapore, and Hong Kong. Norman said that that was just the start. I bring this up, Richard and Prada, mostly to wonder aloud who specifically does not want this to happen other than the PGA. And I think as we see these plans sort of get more and more attention. We're understanding that they sort of benefit 99% of the world right now. I mean, it's like all of the players would get paid more. All of us would get more golf to watch. It gives us new tournaments and events, new backdrops, more courses from around the world uh, to potentially see that we would never see. Gives us a special separate offering than the FedEx Cup and other tours. And I, I really do just think it will grow the game of golf. Um, and as I mentioned for the players, it's a lot more money. Um, and I think the one concern somebody might have about what's happening with the Saudi backed, um, moves in the golf space is, you know, what will happen to the traditional golf tournaments and like the way the golf world works now. But I sort of think, and, and Richard, I'd love your opinion on this. The masters will continue to be the tradition. Unlike any other, the U S open and British open big annual events won't really change. So I just see this as a big way to expand the sport. Anyway, I have been on my soapbox about this on almost every episode, so I apologize for those of you who are not interested. But um, one more factoid that I discovered this week in researching this, the company name is pronounced with a short I as in live large. Yeah. Did you see this, Richard? But it also may be read as the Roman numeral for 54, a score one could get by shooting a birdie on every hole on a standard par 72 course like Augusta <laughs> National. That is next level um branding which i think is really really cool anyway um the the saudi international this week a uh, big tournament 
the course looks amazing. So all eyes from the golf world are there right now. Yeah, it's it's really interesting to watch this. And and you're right. Who who would be in terms of an audience, in terms of consumers of you know watching golf, you know who would be against this? You can see why the PGA is against it because. As you point out, if you're talking about the majors, the Masters, the U.S. Open, uh, those sorts of things, it, they're not going to. There's not going to be a um, diminishment of participation in those events. Uh, but if you're talking about the Pebble Beach, AT&T, which is ongoing now, you've got 21 of the top 50 players not there. They're in Saudi Arabia, and so I, from the from the PGA's perspective, I understand their angst. Uh, but we, as we've said before, I, I see them eventually all sort of meeting. Uh, you know, this, the Saudi initiative is pulling the PGA towards them, and that is more, uh, uh, more, more international tournaments, higher purses, smaller fields of better-known golfers. And you've already seen that with the PGA when they, when they combine with uh, what was a European tour, but is now the Dubai Ports Tour, DP Tour. Uh, to do exactly that, give more marquee, value, you know, international tournaments. And and Greg Norman's point is, going all the way back when he was number one in the world. Obviously, you know, he's an Aussie. He's saying you don't understand Americans. You don't understand the attraction of these international players, the Gary players, the Seve uh, Ballesteros, all these guys. They have tremendous attraction, and they should be, you know, we should take advantage of that. They should be rewarded for that, and they should be allowed to help build the game of golf. So I think it's I think it's going actually towards the Saudi way. But there's going to be you know PGA is going to fight it all the way because in in large part cuz these lesser tournaments by lesser I mean non-major tournaments they're really going to get pinged. Sure if, if this is allowed way. to get momentum. Yeah, that's a really good point Richard. It and it sure looks like that. I I'm sure you saw this morning uh Phil Mickelson came out with some of the strongest words yet about what Saudi Arabia is doing, essentially saying they've already changed the PGA, like changes have already happened to how much we're getting paid, some changes yeah. to the media rights. So even if the Saudi effort just folds up shop right now, the changes that it's enacted on the PGA were already good. Yeah, Phil Mickelson has just pocketed $8 million of this new program, new $40 million program, player impact program that the PGA started to pay those players who have a high profile and, and, and grow the game. And, 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 you know, Phil obviously is a, is a spokesman and someone who's well known, and he came in number one. He gets $8 million of that $40 million, but that, that $40 million is distributed on down the line to other players who help grow the game. So, again, this is where PGA is, is trying to adapt to a new world that is being pushed right now by Saudi. Farada, do you play golf? I don't know. No, unfortunately, I've tried it once before. I'm not sure if it's my game, but, but actually, <laughs> what I want to say is that there's a lot of focus on sports, as you know, in Saudi. And the goal is, is to boost community involvement in sports to 40% by 2030. In fact, yeah. um, Saudi female participation um, shot up by 150% since 2015. Um, and now back to golf, the kingdom is aiming to have up to 20, uh, 27,000 registered golfers uh, to ensure that and also to ensure that over one million Saudis at least actively try golf um, once. Um, and another piece of information, did you know that the first golf course was built in Dharan in the eastern province in the 1940s by Aram employees? Um, then the Saudi Gold Federation was founded in 1999. Yes, it, that course, I guess they would, you know, pour, you know, oil, the greens were oil greens, you know, the sand that was, had been packed down with oil and everyone carried around their own little, you know, pat, uh, swatch of AstroTurf to hit off of. Um, yeah, it is fascinating. The other thing, I, I, in terms of sports federations, they, they've just massively expanded the number of sports that are in, you know, being supported and, and encouraged. I think it's gone from 33 sports federations to, to uh, 93. And um, things, things, you know, right now there's a cycling, the, the Saudi tour, the cycling tour is going on in Alula. While, you know, Lucian is a, is a golf geek, I'm a Dakar rally geek. That just finished, which is amazing. And by the way, the, the 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 videos of that was amazing. But on our on our daily newsletter, the review, um, 
we've been including some videos the last couple of days of the Saudi tour. Uh, so the biking and so segments, and that's really cool to watch too. It's it's a lot of fun to see. Yeah, and all of this is happening with in the golf space without really any or very few golf courses in Saudi Arabia. There are like a handful right now, but there are a lot more coming. So more golf courses means more access, and more access means more eventual interest, which is really cool. I believe that um, Jack Nicholas is building one at Kidia, which yeah. looks dope. Um, Richard yeah, wants to put that on our hit list as well. Kitty is um, lagging. Kitty is lagging a little bit, but it's it will be great when it gets there. But Radha, your your point is really well made, because we always make the, the distinction here is that Saudi Arabia. You know what hits the front page of these glitzy things like the mm -hmm. Saudi International or or the purchase of Newcastle, uh, uh, these things. But what's going on behind the scenes domestically has really strong efforts to link these things, these these sort of marquee investments or events with increased Saudi participation. So one of the very cool things coming out of this Saudi International is um, there's going to be a documentary of the two Saudi golfers, two Saudi pro golfers who are participating in the Saudi Nationals, International. And it's going to be a, a, like, a, I think, a six-segment documentary of, of their experience of training up for it and then going to it and then behind the ropes, is, you know, so it, it's, it, it'll, be, it'll be taking this marquee event, which is controversial and brings in huge stars, and it'll be segmenting and say, all right, but look at these are our Saudi boys. You know, our community it's, uh, have, have worked hard to, to be able to qualify and participate in this, and, and look how exciting golf is, and don't you want to be part of this? So it, it's, it's part of a bigger picture, which we try and reemphasize whenever we talk about these things. Exactly. I always encourage people to look at what's happening on the micro level um, and, and going back to sports. And what's amazing is that the Ministry of Sports is following a start them young approach. So whenever they look at a sport, they develop training programs for children um, to join or, or camps. Um, and they're working with the Ministry of Education on this, actually. So watch this space. And we had a really great interview on the 966 with Lena Almayina about just the development of what she's doing in Jeddah and Riyadh and beyond and how she did it, how she started the business. And it was a really cool glimpse into how this really started about, you know, just under two decades ago. And it's, it's really hitting its stride right now. But great interview. Check that out on our YouTube channel and wherever you get your podcast. But that was fantastic. It was a good one. I heard that one. Oh, thank you. Just a, just a quick as we close that up, if we're closing that up, uh, sure. you can see uh, the Saudi International Thursday, Friday, it's on the Golf Channel. Saturday, Sunday, it's on the Golf Channel. And I guess you can stream it on N if you have an NBC Sports app. Uh, so if you want to check it out and, and that that Royal Greens course is gorgeous. And obviously, they're going to have a lot of competition with a lot of good golfers. One more thing. Sure, I mean, please. I'll talk about really, golf all day. <laughs> <laughs> we, Majid El Saroor, the CEO of Golf Saudi, really should come on and talk to us about Come on to the 966, please. Yes. Yes. Video of Golf Saudi. He's probably busy right now and <laughs> until guessing, Monday. Yeah. And, then, <laughs> and then after Monday, we know that he has 364 days yeah, to exactly. come on to the 966. So. Except I think he's going on the board of Newcastle, too. So anyway, he's a busy man, I'm sure. <laughs> um, if you guys are ready, we'll switch up here and talk about social entrepreneurship in Saudi Arabia and the social enterprise sector. We talk a lot on the show about the importance of entrepreneurship in general for Saudi Arabia and its vision 2030, but there's, and, and there's clear progress in that. The kingdom's IPO market is heating up. Saudi Arabia is climbing up international entre entrepreneurship indices. The Global entrepreneur Entrepreneurship Monitor Report 2020-21 said the kingdom ranks seventh in entrepreneurship and a whopping nine out of 10 asked said it was easy to start a business in Saudi Arabia. So what about social entrepreneurship? The sector sits between philanthropy and private enterprise using commercial methods to address social needs in innovative, financially sustainable ways. I think Rada, you are pretty much the expert on this. So I'd like to kick it over to you. Some of the questions we'd like to get at today are, does Saudi Arabia now have a budding group of social entrepreneurs looking to bring change? And uh, if so, are these social entrepreneurs and future social entrepreneurs seeing support from the government and others? Well, uh, thank you, Roshan. Yes, um, I actually spent about four or five years uh, researching social entrepreneurship in Saudi, and I've uh, 
conducted countless interviews, collected data on this, and I've written a piece recently for the Atlantic Council on social entrepreneurship in Saudi. Um, I think I'd like to start by saying first, what is social entrepreneurship? So it has played a big role in solving social and environmental issues that countries face today, and more so during the pandemic. I mean, a social entrepreneurs usually develops a business solution or initiative for social and environmental problems. So it's, it's driven by these um, pragmatic, innovative visionaries and their network. That's an important thing, which I'll go back to later. And it's built on the concept that a business should serve the interest of all society rather than simply the shareholders. Um, and to be honest, if you ask for a clearer definition, then it would be difficult because it depends on the context and on the country. So it's a, it's a fluid and contested concept. Um, simply what happens is a social entrepreneur tackles real issues uh, with business tools. Um, and once profit is made, uh, that profit would be reinvested in, in similar ways in order to tackle the same problem or a similar one. Um, the most famous example is, um, and that's an international example, is Muhammad Yunus. He's a Nobel Peace Prize winner, um, and he founded the Grameen Bank um, and, and pioneered the concept of a microcredit and microfinance. Um, and the bank gives out loans to entrepreneurs who do not qualify for traditional bank loans, mostly women, and it started in Bangladesh. Uh, so yeah, I spent four years mapping out uh, the social entrepreneurship ecosystem and network in, in Saudi for my PhD research. Um, right now, um, I was looking at the data on this. Uh, the most recent one came up from Munshaat, which is the small and medium general authority in Saudi, um, the small and medium enterprise general authority in Saudi. And uh, we have about 3,000 um, social enterprises as of 2018, though, as of 2018. So probably there's more now. And that was an interesting report by Munshat. And um, and one of the one of the things it said was, in terms of the nascent nature of you know social entrepreneurship, it was saying that uh, in Saudi in, in Canada, for example, there's 50 not for not for profit social organizations for every 10,000 people in the U in the U.S. There's 200 in France. Again, 200 not-for-profit social organizations per 10,000 people. Currently in Saudi Arabia, there's, there's one not-for-profit not social organization per 10,000 people. And as you say, it's a, it's a relatively new thing. It is, but I'll, I'll have to be honest, Richard, that I think um, the numbers you're seeing, this low level of, of social entrepreneurial activity that may appear in reports, is just because uh, there isn't enough data on this. And a lot of people are social entrepreneurs or are founded mm -hmm. social enterprises, and they just don't realize it um, yet. Uh, and I felt that from the interviews that I, that I did. Um, and and I think, uh, well, in the, the same report for Munshaat, um, they were saying that uh, they're hoping that by 2030, social enterprises would be able to create at least 250,000 job opportunities for Saudis. So there is potential there. And in, in, in what sectors, did, in, from your research and your experience, what sectors seem to be the most active? I would say women empowerment. Um, uh, or women, let's say, uh, women um, finding jobs. Yeah, women empowerment, helping them find jobs. So and a very important example is Glow Work. Um, it was founded by a social entrepreneur um, who was an Ashoka fellow, Khalid al Khudair, um, and it is essentially a recruitment agency. Um, and with the blessing and backing of Saudi authorities, uh, Glow Work has helped um, over 10,000 uh, of women find jobs in fields like design, HR, sales. Um, and at first, Glow Work also encouraged uh, companies to set up arrangements where women can work from home. Um, by 2019, uh, more than 10,000 women have also attended GlowWorks workshops. Um, and these workshops, they used to help them and give them tips about how to better market your skills and how to write your resume. Uh, so that's the type of support that they provided. Now, if I'm not mistaken, and I could very well be, GlowWorks was actually established before Vision 2030 in 2016, wasn't it? Yeah. It, yeah, it's been around for a little bit. It's the original. Yes. And, 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 and this is when I think I should mention the network of social entrepreneurs. So there are different capitals you need when you start a business, right? You've got social capital, human capital, 
financial capital. But I think in, in the case of social entrepreneurship in Saudi, the most important was the social capital. Um, and I've identified five main actors. The first one is the government, obviously. Um, so Munshaat, uh, let's say. Um, and then we also have the global foundations, such as, um, sorry, um, yes, the global foundations that would be Ashoka and Acumen. Uh, who have so far sponsored about seven fellows. Then we have the local foundations like King Khalid Foundation or Misk Foundation. Uh, then we have the private sector, uh, which includes uh, mostly family businesses such as Arajhi, Subay, uh, Jamil. Um, and then finally, you've got the intermediaries. So it's law firms uh, who may want to give you know, pro bono advice to, to the social entrepreneurs. And, and if you have access to them, uh, those five actors, then you probably can survive in an environment where there might not be policies or regulations supporting the type of business you have. And it seems sort of like social enterprises could have a very key role in Vision 2030. And I don't know how, but it just seems like they they would, they're sort of ideal in that they, just like we talked about, they would provide both economic development and social benefit, a better quality of life. So it seems like the government if they're not now, will soon be emphasizing this area. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm very optimistic, um, especially with the establishment of the um, NCNP, um, the National mm -hmm. Center for the Nonprofit Sector. Um, and, um, and there's certainly a higher level of awareness of the contribution that social enterprises make. Um, and I've been hearing that they've been conducting research into this, meeting with social entrepreneurs, and probably we will hear some more positive announcements soon that you'll need to cover on your podcast. I think we will. <laughs> well, we did cover the establishment of the nonprofit city. Uh, any thoughts on that? Um, well, I know that uh, MISC was involved um, and, and right. uh, you know, creating the city. Uh, but it is yet unclear to me. I also tried to read about it recently, and it is a little unclear to me whether uh, it would include social enterprises um, or not. It could be just, you know, about um, creating a more thriving charity sector. Um, yeah. Um, talk a little bit about these private uh, private initiatives. For example, the, the Jamil, they've always been very active in this area. You mentioned Al, you mentioned Al Raji and. Um, El Sabay. El Yes. Um, they've been and they're involved in, in, in social entrepreneurship in, in what ways? Uh, mostly funding, I would say, right. mostly funding them. Um, sometimes they don't have very active programs where it says, oh, if you're a social entrepreneur, come to us. But it's more like if you have an idea, you'd, you'd go to them and, and, you know, they might be more excited to fund you because they see it's not only about the financial benefits that you will get or they'll get, but also, you know, it will support society in a way, um, hopefully. So um, there's that. And there have been a lot of recent initiatives, uh, more and more initiatives by, by the government and by local foundations uh, to, to support social entrepreneurs in different ways. And, you know, the, the, the whole idea of corporate social responsibility, CSR, is um, something that's taken hold in Saudi Arabia over the last decade. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a habit, you know, prior to a recent period. And now every, comp every corporation has somebody in charge of their CSR. And, and hopefully this feeds into, just, you, know, so, you know, supporting social entrepreneurship and that sort of thing. I mean, there are different types of social entrepreneurship. Again, this goes back to the definition. So there's corporate social entrepreneurship. Um, but if you, the idea is when you start that business, the main reason you're doing it is to solve a specific issue or to produce a product you believe will help society. Um, and usually in a business, it's, it's not that. Uh, it's about making profit. So uh, uh, where do the arts fall into this? Ooh, okay. Um, it's Great funny question. you mentioned because my my what I wanted to do when I started my PhD, I actually worked with a social enterprise here in the UK, um, and that social enterprise was a, sort of a sister company to a gallery, and and which inspired you know my my research proposal and the reason I wanted to do a PhD and um, and I thought you know what I would love to do a PhD on social enterprises that support the creative industry in Saudi but keep in mind that was back in 2014 2015 
Um, and the first finding of my research was that there are no social enterprises supporting the creatives, or at least I failed in finding them. Maybe there were one or two, um, but, but I couldn't find any. And I had to then, you know, pivot my focus a little bit uh, in my research and, and um, look at other types of social enterprises, which was still rewarding to do. So, so it's sort of, but, but it seems to me that there's just, and I'm foreshadowing here because one of our yellow items is, is, is about the art scene in, in Saudi Arabia. And we've done a number of segments on uh, the Biennale, on Haya Jamil, and on uh, just the extraordinary number of things going on in terms of promoting arts and creativity. And of course, in the Red Sea Film Festival. Are these, are these, is this, what is, is this social entrepreneurship? What, what is this? Um, no, I wouldn't say, at least I wouldn't classify it as, as a social entrepreneurship um, because it's, it needs, it needs to be, you know, it has, it needs to have a specific business model. Um, you need to be making profit. You need to be clear on what's your impact um, and then on how you will use that profit again in your business to increase that impact. Um, so I wouldn't um, call it, they're great, uh, but they wouldn't be classified as social enterprises. Rada, can we talk a little bit about your time uh, working with uh, Roads of Arabia and the, edge, and the just edge amazing, ed, excuse me, Edge of, edge of Arabia, the, the sort of, just that, that just sounds really interesting. And I think everybody would like to hear about it. By the way, Roads of Arabia was really cool too. And that was the first time, this was way back. Like a decade um, ago, right? Yeah, at like, least. Yeah. But this was this was the first sort of um, foray into pre-Islamic. And, you know, Saudi Arabia had sort of shied away from uh, anything, uh, you know, prior to the uh, the Prophet in his time. Um, and this was this was an interesting for that reason. I mean, because there's all sorts of fascinating pre-Islamic historical things in Saudi Arabia. But anyway, I digress, which I'm prone to do. Sorry, Rhonda. No, it's all right, Richard. Uh, yeah, so I worked with the Jabrabia Gallery. It was um, an interesting time because I actually, the first time I encountered um, contemporary art from Saudi was for an exhibition they had here in, in Brooklyn in London. And that was back uh, in 2012. Um, and I saw it and I just had a feeling that I should be involved. I want to know more about this. Um, and so I went to the gallery, it was based in Battersea. And I worked with them for a while um, and it showcased, you know, beautiful artwork by emerging young Saudi artists. Um, not all of them were young, but uh, they were all very passionate um, and and had, uh, you know, some of them are actually now presenting their work in the Saudi Design Festival and uh, the Dariya Biennale. So it's it's amazing to look at their journey um, where it was, let's say, 10 years ago, they were showing their work only in London, and now they have the opportunity to, you know, show it in Saudi and heart of Riyadh, uh, which is beautiful. I think um, I like that idea very much of, of the artwork going to the U.S. and then traveling all around, because I think Richard Lucian that seeing is believing. You can hear about contemporary art from Saudi Arabia day and night. You can even see it on your social media. But if you actually see the piece in front of you, meet the artist, it's something completely different. And this is also why I feel like I'd like more and more people to come to Saudi and see it, uh, because you, you can listen to this amazing podcast and the episodes that you have. And but definitely um, you know, and read about everything, but definitely it's, it's worth a visit and, and seeing um, what's happening on the ground. We've worked for many years with a group called for the Committee for International Trade, which is part of the now Federation of Saudi Chambers. Is the group CIT, Committee for International Trade, was, was established in the 80s. A nonprofit, private sector, men and women, really capable, competent professionals, based on exactly what you're saying. Uh, and, and they would they would send groups delegations of themselves and that's just for that reason because being able to meet people seeing seeing is believing because most Americans may hear it but they don't believe it uh, so that firsthand uh, first hand ability to, to engage and interact in a firsthand basis is really really helpful absolutely absolutely and I think also that links to um, the goals of the uh, scholarship program um, right. they, so that was one of the reasons they also encouraged people to apply for it and, and to spend a period abroad um, to study and, and to uh, meet people um, and introduce them to Saudi and, and Saudi culture. 
Um, and I think the results of that program were very successful. As far as that I was know. a brilliant program, and it's it's evolving now, and not the same numbers, but it's more directed in terms of what educational needs. But that was an an outstanding program, and we sometimes refer to it. it obviously, it's an educational initiative; it's a social initiative, but it's also a commercial initiative. I mean, it's a great way to establish ties. I mean, because Saudis who come study are going to have an affinity group that are Americans. They're going to like the same things. They're going to find opportunities to work together, do things together. Just an just an outstanding initiative. Exactly. Uh, one of um, I'm going back to social entrepreneurship now, but one of the social entrepreneurs. Uh, she went on a fellowship, an acumen fellowship, um, and then she spent a few months in New York attending that program, and she connected with an American there, and later they established their, um, their social enterprise together, um, which, was, which was great. Um, so, yeah, a lot of opportunities come from um, that sort of exchange of, of knowledge. Rada, we had Fahad Nazar, who's spokesman for the Saudi embassy on the program a few weeks ago. And one of the things that he emphasized was how different Saudi Arabia is now than it was a few days ago, a few weeks ago, a few months ago. It's just constantly changing. You travel to Saudi Arabia a lot. Could you sort of talk about that and how you see it through your eyes changing every time you go and just some kind of cool experiences that, that you see visiting your home country and seeing it change every time? Oh, of course. I think there are hundreds of, uh, of, of large and small scale projects in the works and, and they're happening all over the country. Um, always you, you expect rapid progress, uh, new museums and art spaces and an exciting, uh, exciting international events taking place there. Um, in fact, you know, I feel like I'm missing out if I don't go back there every month. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so, yeah, um, obviously uh, the seasons are a very popular thing. Um, and even the sites that are not fully activated, let's say like Dir'iyah, um, there are still some spots that you can go and visit. Um, and and um, domestic tourism, you can, if you travel around um, Saudi now, it's a completely different experience, especially for women. Um, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're more comfortable, you can drive yourself around, you can drive yourself around and you can, um, there's, there's more acceptance um, for you to do that. Um, and also for international travelers, I conducted some research on uh, Al-Ula and the entrepreneurial families of Al-Ula. Um, and I went around and I interviewed family members who established their own businesses and they were welcoming international tourists into their farms, into their homes. And I met this very old grandmother and she was 80 years old. And she was telling me about how she met uh, two Colombians who came uh, to their home with her son, who was their tour guide and how she was sharing, you know, the traditional Saudi food with them. Uh, yeah, obviously she, she wasn't able to communicate with them um, because she doesn't speak English uh, or, or um, you know, a language that was possible for them to use to communicate, but, um, her son has attended all the translation and um, and and yes, yeah, so examples like this, uh, you find it all around Saudi and then it's great. It's not only about the Saudis also enjoying the country, but, you know, making use of, of the opportunities um, that they're having business opportunities uh, that they're having now. Yeah, that was fantastic. Yeah, um, really, really cool. You So you've you visited Alala recently since the some of the developments going on there and i did i did and uh it was partly you know we were going as a a, with a group of friends but also to conduct research and uh, it was an amazing experience we went camping um sightseeing um and i i absolutely loved it um definitely recommend going there and and they seem to be having a special new event every month um and it changes it's completely different uh every month um and you see beautiful art pieces there, installations, um, experiences. So, um, so yeah, I loved it. And I, I think I was there last year, but uh, yeah, end of 2019, I think. Um, even during the pandemic, by the way, it was possible to travel um, around the country, not leave it, but it was possible to travel around. And uh, I think it was a great thing to do. Really enjoyed it. By the way, Lucian, that's the third thing we need to do. We, one is, you know, go play Royal Greens. Two is, you know, get that lucid. And mm-hmm. three is to take that road trip, extended road trip, and go out to the uh, to the Jeddah area, start there, go see Red Sea development, go see Alula, go up the coast, uh, and go all the way up to Neom. 
and just see all that's going on out there. I'm down. I'm definitely down for that. <laughs> yeah, Desert X yeah. Alula is going on right now. So there's also a huge art show happening in Alula, which is amazing. <laughs> but it, this anchors back to what we were talking about earlier in the show. Just there's all this stuff going on that's changing. And it's such a it's a country that's changing and progressing so quickly that there sort of needs to be an effort also to formalize and cement its history and its youth and you know these people that are these saudis that are seeing all these changes going on to sort of say oh also like this is a we have a our own traditions here we have you know cool contemporary artists coming in from italy but you know we also have our own artists we have our own um industries going on here so it just it's really cool really cool to see what's going on and that was a really cool story that's actually one of the neat things about the Red Sea Film Festival, the, the Art Biennale in, in Riyadh, or uh, what's going on in Jeddah, is there are so many Saudi and regional creatives involved in this. And, you know, they're, they're really building up a, a culture, or, and that, that culture has existed. These, these artists have been there. They're being enabled now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I, I agree with you, Richard. I think they've, uh, it's always been there under the surface and now it's finally um, appearing, which is beautiful. Right. Right. Let's move on to Yella, if you guys are ready. Um, before we do that, I just want to mention that um, if you want to listen to this whole podcast, you can do that on wherever you get your podcasts, on Apple, uh, Spotify, Stitcher. You can listen to the whole podcast there, but we break down each of our topics into segments and they go onto YouTube. So in addition to seeing all of our beautiful faces on YouTube, you can also get more of a rich experience there and just watch part of the segments or part of the episodes that you want to watch there. So you don't have to listen to the whole thing if you don't want to. But of course, we encourage that. Um, and Rada, thank you again for joining us this week. This has been awesome. So I think we should proceed now to the big finish. Yella, uh, Yella Richard, Saudi- do you want to kick us off? Saudi in a minute, and rather jump in wherever you want or not. Um, first one, uh, according to Bloomberg's recently released COVID resilience ranking, Saudi Arabia ranks second among countries, quote, best coexisting with COVID-19 pandemic. The top five countries are UAE, Saudi Arabia, Finland, Turkey, and Singapore. I noticed the UK and the United States are not in the top five. That is not a shock at all. Um, US, is, US is 23. Mm. That seems high. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a different proposition. We've talked about this. Saudi Arabia has done a remarkable job, but Saudi Arabia has inbuilt advantages. And so, and, and, and they didn't fritter away those advantages. I mean, so that's important. Uh, but they, they should be applauded for what they've done. It's been extraordinary. Absolutely. I mean, one thing I'd like to add here is that during COVID, the government leveraged two decades of continued investment in in modern digital infrastructure. So the country's digital capabilities have provided a very solid foundation uh, for key aspects of the COVID-19 emergency response. For example, um, the national portal Gov.SA has maintained a very reliable access to over 900 government services. Um, despite a surge in traffic when the curfew was applied nationally. So with business, health, and education, it was um, business as usual. And I can say that from a personal experience. They, um, according to this, this COVID re- resilience ranking, the, the, the couple of things that play into it, one of them is high rate of, uh, of inoculation, which Saudi Arabia has achieved. The other is the consistent openness to travel. And Saudi Arabia has been cautious, but it hasn't been draconian. It hasn't just stopped everything in terms of, it, you know, for a period it did like everybody, but it's opened up. And, uh, and that's one reason, according again to the study and the rankings, that their economy, Saudi's economy, has bounced back quite nicely. Absolutely. Okay, number two. <clears throat> Biom is set to issue its first tenders to build a renewable power grid later this year, according to the executive director of Neom Energy. The first tender packages to be issued will be in the range of 400 megawatts to 800 megawatts. Ultimately, Neom is pl- planning to install 8 to 10 gigawatts of wind power and 16 to 20 gigawatts of solar power generation. This is, seems like the real beginning of Neom to me. The whole thing is built on you know, the idea that it's a future city and it will be run on renewable energy. So to see this announcement and this is a great find from you richard um to see this announcement come into play sort of seems like this is really the beginning of neom i, I don't know how, how you guys feel for me and for part of for what we trying to do here as we know on the 966 and everything with regard to you know saudi u.s trade group and our, our digital media is trying to unpack things that are going on in saudi arabia and and 
you always see the large glitzy announcements. There's plenty of those. They keep coming. And, and as we know, Saudi Arabia does not lack for aspiration or ambition, which is notable and commendable. And part of what we want to do is come back and see how implementation is going because these things will take time and these things, a lot of things will happen below the surface before you actually see real results. And that's what we want to keep track of. And so, you know, this is, again, this is 400 megawatts to 800 megawatts. It's just a, a piddling amount. But the point is they're getting started and, and this is the, the first step in a long journey, but you got to take that first step and the next step and the next step. And we'll be watching, but it's encouraging because this is what you want to see. Rada, have you been up to the site where they will be building Neom? I have. I have actually. Um, only once. Um, I traveled all, all around Tabuk. It was a business trip. Uh, <laughs> it very cool. much. You know, you look at the seas, they're turquoise, blue, light blue. You look at the mountains, they're red, brown, and, and yellow. It's uh, They have beautiful sites up there in Neom. Uh, and I, I remember that uh, they mentioned they're planning on actually maintaining um, you know, that natural heritage that they have there and, and protecting the environment, which is great. What's yeah, cool about this, you'll, oh, please, Richard. No, no, go ahead. I was going to say what's cool about that is that when Neom is done and it's a thriving city, you will remember what it looked like when nothing was there, which is kind of an experience that I will never have to see a place <laughs> before a city is built there. That's really cool. Unless we make this trip. Unless we, yes, but we got to go <laughs> soon because they're putting a power grid in there <laughs> no. and uh, that, that might be the, uh, it might be the end of that, so. So um, as a Saudi, Rada, is this exciting? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think it's a this futuristic city and you just think about, you know, the, the resources they're putting into this. Um, I have some cousins who work there, some cousins, cousins who are on a scholarship to study, uh, a Neom scholarship. Um, so I can, and, and they're telling me about what's happening there um, and, and all the great projects that they have planned and programs. So uh, it will take time, like you said, Richard, it will take time. Um, and especially with a project like Neom, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. a long time yeah. just to actually see it materialize. But um, I'm optimistic. So did you, when you went there, did you just like go by, did you drive there? Did you go in a boat and did you like stay or did you just go see it and then? I I stayed there actually. Um, And um, yeah, I stayed there for about a week. Um, I wasn't the one driving just because I'm, I'm familiar with the roads there. So I had someone with me uh, who who, were a local. Um, Yeah, exactly. You don't want to get lost there because sometimes (laughs) you can't find signal and we were going around looking at some sites and, uh, yeah, you don't want to get lost there alone. Um, so, um, and the people there are super friendly. Um, if you ask for directions, if you need to ask for directions, if you just want to talk to them, they're very eager to share, you know, um, all the information they have about what's happening here, all the developments and they themselves, the locals are very integrated into the development plans. Um, and they feel that, you know, they're sort of heroes of their own um, city, uh, their own towns, um, which is beautiful to see. Um, so I definitely encourage you guys to go there soon. Interesting. I'm trying to think of a situation in which a city was built with renewable energy as the power source, as sort of the choice. I mean, Richard, you were talking in a previous episode about how Neom not just has really great, like many places in Saudi Arabia, access to the potential for solar energy, but also in the evening, that wind power uh, is very windy there in the evening. So there's an opportunity there. And it's, it's interesting because Neom is obviously a beautiful place to build a city, but part of the decision making going into it was, hey, look, like this place could actually be powered by renewable energy. Just interesting to think about that. I mean, historically, it's probably not happened very often, if at yeah, all. That, that was Adam Siminski, former head of Capsoft, That's right. who was That's talking right. about how, how the tremendous renewable resources are between solar during the day and wind at night. And we also did an episode, though, on the types of giga projects and Neom, along with Red Sea Development and Amala, which is now part of Red Sea Development. Um, these greenfield you know, giga projects where you can come in and you sort of, uh, you just, you know, you basically color what you see in your mind um, and create these ambitious and, and cutting edge realities if you can get it to be a reality. And I think Red Sea Development are making real progress, but Neom, they're, they're making some progress. But it's, it's really exciting to see when you see a green field like this, you know, mm-hmm. blank slate and come in and just have these enormous ambitions. 
and uh, and, and 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 the finances to to take a shot at it, and it's it's just exciting to watch. Um, number three, Red Sea Farms, which is backed by investors from Saudi Arabia and the UAE, is expanding into the U.S. through its new agricultural technology that tackles food security problems by helping countries to grow crops in areas with scarce water resources. The University of Arizona's College of Agriculture and Life Sciences will evaluate the company's latest technology with the aim of introducing it in the world's, into the world's largest economy. Is the, Red, is the Red Sea Farms, are they backed by the PIF? Um, I don't know. <laughs> you know I, think, I think you need to think at the current situation today, it's safe to say yes. It's safe to say yes. Yeah. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> I think that I'm not sure when I mean, we should answer that. I thought this was interesting because uh, the, here it is. This is what you, you know, this is, uh, you know, last week we talked about the increase in non-oil exports and, you know, how that's what Saudi Arabia, you know, that's a big part of Vision 2030 and that's a, a, an important process. You know, exporting technology, and in this case Red Sea Farms uses seawater to, to offset, you know, water usage, salt water. And they have they have technology exporting technology again. You know, Saudi Arabia would love to become a center of, of technological expertise in, in carbon capture and hydrogen. Uh, but here we are. Uh, so I just thought it was interesting, and I'm sure you know it's a, it's a nice little touchstone if you're looking at at progress within Saudi Arabia that might be exportable. Agreed. Okay, number four. The 2021 Riyadh season, which was launched on October 20th, has attracted over 10 million visitors and 1 million tourists in roughly 100 days. Wow. The five-month season lasts until March 22nd. That is a lot of people. So so 9 million visitors, um, well, I guess 10 million visitors, but 1 million were, were tourists. So almost a third of all Saudis have been to the 2021 Riyadh season. That is astonishing. And the photos online of it look really, really cool. I mean, all these different events together, but um, just, just awesome. Um, I'm sure Frada, you're, you're, you would like to go. I don't know if it's going to happen this year, but um, it just looks really, really cool. It is, and and it's obvious that tourism and entertainment are vital aspects in, in achieving many of the 2030 goals, right? Like attract investments, increase revenues, create job opportunities for citizens. I mean. If it's not only about the seasons, if we're looking for ecotourism and, and responsible tourism, um, there is the Red Sea Project, um, health and well-being. We've got Amala, technology and business, that's Neom, heritage and culture, you have Dri'iyan al-Ula. So, so there is something for, for everyone. We did a segment on this, and there's an insane number of events going on, something like 75 hours a day of programming and and, and these are there may be more than that but uh and everyone we speak to or that is that, that has been to it you know it's a it's a it's a happening place it's a must see if you're any if you get there and people are coming from you know jeddah and elsewhere to come be part of riyadh season it's five months long it's just a phenomenon yeah. if you go onto instagram and look up riyadh season all of these saudi creators like really really good photographers are taking photos of, of Riyadh season and videos and everything else. It's really a cool little rabbit hole to go down. It's uh, very cool to explore. <laughs> um, so check that out. Um, very interesting. Number five, the Saudi Shura Council unanimously approved on Monday a draft amendment to the flag emblem and national anthem system. The proposed changes aim to more clearly define the proper uses of the state emblem, raise awareness about the importance of the flag and anthem, and protect the flag from infringement or neglect. Unfortunately, these changes will not be in place for the Saudi Winter Olympic team. Um, and I saw Princess Rima bin Bandar is actually in uh, China now for the games. But this is cool. This will probably not be, Richard, like the recent rebrand of the Washington football team. Um, I think this will be widely, uh, widely embraced. And... Um, I'll be interested to see what this looks like. We just, like we mentioned earlier, we just had the sort of news story, but we don't really know much about what will happen here. And so. I think it's in keeping with the founding day, you know, the one big thing we did today uh, in the sense of just sort of um, growing the Saudi identity and deepening it, uh, you know, and then in this, in this case, formalizing it in some way, you know, you know, and, 
and, and protecting the flag and that sort of thing. So it'll be interesting to see what comes of this. But I think it's part and parcel of the larger effort to let's let's keep moving this out of the identity forward. Let's keep growing it and uh, and make sure we have in all these touchstones like the flag and the anthem in order. Mm-hmm. Number six and our final item in yellow today. If you have not noticed how fast Saudi Arabia's art scene is moving, we recommend Rahil Ayamaz. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. That's right. I made you do this one. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Recent article for Art Forum, Stepping Stones, The Saudi Scene Takes the World Stage. It's a terrific report on the current state of the Jeddah and Riyadh art scenes. It really is. Check it out. We have it on our website, sustg.com. But it's just a really sort of great perspective on what's going on in the Jeddah and Riyadh art scenes right now. Lots of good pictures, too. And and I threw I added it because when I, I went when I read it and I sort of kept going and going and and she goes from Jeddah she travels from Jeddah and goes to Riyadh and she has opinions on all of it she has opinions on you know exhibits and displays and and shows and that sort of thing and that's sort of what struck me this was a long article detailed about a variety of art exhibits and shows going on in Saudi Arabia in multiple cities. I just thought it was fascinating. It didn't happen five years ago. Really, and, and I think it really did paint what is happening right now, which is they're activating amazing sites, um, they're attracting uh, talents, international talent, and they're also creating spectacular events. Um, I, I you know, that was an amazing article. Yeah, Richard and Rada Halas. Let's put a bow on it with that. Uh, Thank you all for tuning in. We will be back next week. Rutta, thank you so much for joining us from London and your time. Really great conversation. We hope you join us again. Of course. Thank you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you.